Look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Hey, man. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so uh, if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up uh, your hand and one of our ushers will get a Bible to you. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. And if you're new to the Bible, you can start in the right and turn left. You'll find it much faster. And, uh, or you can go two-thirds of the way through uh, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, you'll find some names there. John uh, chapter number 12, starting in verse 9. Actually, starting in verse 12, 12, 12. And you say amen when you're there. Amen. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard uh, he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are going to gain nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. And who you are to us. I ask for your grace that you would help us look at the scriptures. And ultimately, we would see you more clearly. Let our lives revolve around this book. This book that is about you. So then if our lives revolve around this book that is about you, our lives will revolve around you. Let us hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. And we ask for your help that we would walk towards you and walk with you every single day and every single step of the way. We ask for your grace. Let everything we say and everything we do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, 
Amen. A very famous passage of Scripture we get to. It's called the Triumphant Entry. And this is ultimately where Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the height of tension between him and the religious leaders. They've plotted to kill him. And ultimately, after this sign where he's raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, tensions are high and the plot is thick. And they are going to kill Jesus, and he knows it. And yet his disciples know it. They know there's a a plot to kill him. And yet Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, and he does it in the most peculiar way. See, when he gets there, he, he has his disciples go find them. One of the other gospels tell them, go to this one specific place. You'll find a donkey there. Tell them that it's been put there by the Lord. The Lord has need of it and just take that donkey. And uh, the donkey is then uh, prepared for Jesus. Jesus rides in on this donkey and everyone sees Jesus coming in and, and they go and cut palm branches off of trees and they begin to wave them. Maybe you've been in church for some time and you're familiar with the event of Palm Sunday, the, 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 the Sunday before Easter. They celebrate this particular event where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and like a parade, a makeshift parade, an impromptu parade. They begin to grab anything they can and they begin to cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you've heard it preached. Maybe you've never heard anything like this. And so you're thinking, wait wait a second. Jesus is coming. I thought he was the son of a carpenter. I thought he was a lowly man. I thought he was a humble man. And they're calling him king. Wait a second. People are trying to kill him, and, and they're overthrown by the, or they're governed by the Romans. How can he be the king of Israel? Herod is king of Israel. So, what does this mean? I mean, what a peculiar story, and what a peculiar story it is to see Jesus riding on a donkey. And yet there are many opinions about why it is Jesus comes in. But one of the main reasons is it fulfills this prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah uh, 9, 9. And he writes this, um, John leaves this for us. He quotes Zechariah 9, 9, this famous passage for them, but goes out of the window when it first happens. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. What is the significance of that? Well, they've been looking for this king, this Messiah. Maybe you've heard that term used in the scripture, Messiah or Christ. Can I just tell you that Christ is not Jesus's last name? You're welcome. But it was more like a title. And sometimes we uh, can be so removed from original context 
that when we hear words like Messiah or Christ or Son of God or Son of Man, we begin to lump all of these things together and we think uh, that they're interchangeable words, but, but yet they're, they're very distinct. We look back now seeing that Jesus fulfills so many of these prophecies and we tie those to the person of Jesus. We believe that all of these stories about the Bible are all about we practiced that earlier and we wrote it on the wall <laughs> that all of these stories and all of these titles find their place in the person of Jesus because it's all about but not everybody thought that not, not everyone believed that all of these titles were pointing to one Person. There were all these stories, and it would be hard to fit those together, yet the early church would begin to teach these scriptures. For, for more than 25 years, the only Bible that the early church had was the Old Testament scriptures. 25 years after, some of the letters of Paul is being written, and then people would go, hey, we're being removed from the eyewitnesses, so let's write down the story so our children have exactly what we believe. Let's make sure that the eyewitnesses write it down. Hey, Luke, man, do some research. Put this together. Go investigate and write a document. And he writes to his friend. He writes a couple volumes to his beloved friend. I mean, I, 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 I have some good friends, but I might even text them on their birthday, let alone write them a book. How about you? And yet he writes these things. But the early church would, would teach the Old Testament scriptures. And they would teach it in such a way that they would go into them and they would find all the things that point to you. They essentially go, I forget all of the things you thought previously. The key to unlocking uh, all the things you've read is insert the person of Jesus or have this belief that this is all about Jesus. And this isn't just the early church's claim. This is actually what Jesus does after the resurrection. Two fools on a road to Emmaus. Why do they call them fools? Because they were telling Jesus stories to Jesus and missed that they were with Jesus. You don't know the story, but two men are walking along and somehow they don't recognize Jesus in his resurrected state. And Jesus walks up behind them and says, Hey, what are you guys talking about? They're like where have you been? <laughs> he was like, I was vacationing for a couple of days, actually. Uh, and, and he says, what do you mean? Tell me more. They, they said, there, there's this Jesus from Nazareth, and he's been doing signs and wonders. We had hoped that he was the Christ, but the Romans killed him. And then now it's been three days he's been buried. Some of the ladies went to the tomb this morning, found it empty. They say he's risen, but we're not sure. <laughs> Jesus says, do tell. <laughs> and yet, Jesus then walks with them, and it says this, that he began to show them all of the things in the scriptures concerning himself. He teaches the Bible. He teaches the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we would use this, and he teaches it, and he says all of these things concerning himself. Him 
self. And so then if we are to be people who follow in Bible teaching methods, I think Jesus would be the person to model our Bible teaching methods after. How about you? Somebody say amen to that, right? And so then if, if you are to listen to preaching, not only do you want to hear about the person of Jesus, you want to know the reason why we are talking about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, what I've been fascinating with and, and fa have found extremely helpful over the years is uh, this organization called the Bible Project. And you've heard me probably speak of them often. And, and uh, the banner in the back that lays out uh, the Gospel of John, the map that we've been going through, is from the Bible Project. They write all of, they, they make these videos and it, there's a uh, a scholar and pastor, a couple pastors who had planted a church up in the Northwest. And, and this uh, Tim Mackey is a scholar who uh, sets down with another pastor and they begin to explain biblical themes. They take you through uh, different books of the Bible. It's one of the most helpful resources uh, by the grace of God. See, technology can use for, be used for a lot of different things and, and we love that God is uh, creative and so then we are meant to be creative, amen? God is creator, we are uh, made in his image so we uh, use our talents, our gifts, and our abilities and so if you're a young person, you go, hey, I don't know how to use my gifts. Use your gift to the glory of God. Is it art? Is it, is it literature? Is it technology? Is it design? Is it gaming? Is it what can I do? Everything. Let me do everything. Now their videos have been viewed millions and millions of times, translated in many different languages. And, and oftentimes pastoring in a diverse church like we have, there are people who speak different languages. And so I've been able to share with them where, where my abilities stop. I've shared, hey, here's this video. I know what the video says in English. Let me send this to you in a different language. And, and when they watch in that, wow, uh, just like uh, the book of Acts, which said they heard the gospel in their own language. And so I'm so thankful for resources like this. I, I would encourage you that as you go on your journey, as you begin to look at the scriptures, we need people to help explain certain things to us, right? We talked last week, the, the, the Ethiopian man who's sitting in a chariot and he's reading the book of Isaiah and, and, and Philip walks up and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Now, notice in this particular passage what the disciples say at the end of, or what John uh, reveals to us about the disciples. His disciples did not understand these things at First, you're in good company. Amen? Right? <laughs> Amen. Right? Yeah, we're, we're in good company if you didn't understand this at first or you missed this. You, you ever looked back on something? You ever, you ever watched uh, a, a movie and the final scene of the movie uh, j just revealed to you the rest? Like, wait a second. I, I, I did not see that at all like many of you remember the sixth sense back in the day you're like he's been dead this whole time right and then you go back and rewatch all of the movie you're like man i did not see that at all and yet we can condemn or we look at the pharisees or, or the jews and go man how did they miss that and it's like this is a part of it we get locked in our story we get locked in our but one key 
part once you see that Jesus, that Jesus is the point of all Scripture, then all of a sudden it begins to look quite different. We're going to watch a video um, that is a biblical theme about Messiah, that biblical term that oftentimes we miss. Why is it that they wave him up on palm branches? Why is it they call him king of Israel? And then why is it that he's on a donkey? And how is that different than maybe what they expected? So we're going to watch this. I want you to lock in for a moment. And this one's an older video. This was made one of their first videos. I think it's interesting. One of their first in 2014. Uh, So even some of their videos now, you can see the quality increases over the years. But I think one of the reasons why they made this video first is because this uh, is one of the major themes, if not at the top of the list, this idea of Jesus Christ Jesus the Messiah. And so when we use the word Messiah, this is one of the first biblical terms that we have to first wrestle with and understand before we can really understand anything else. So lock in, and then I'm going to come up and give some more implications and maybe some application, and then we're going to take communion together. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story. When God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. 
But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground, and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snakebite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Hey man, aren't you thankful for resources like that? Jesus rides in on a donkey. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. This is from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They begin to sing this hymn and this song to welcome him in. And by doing this, they are saying this is the Messiah. This is the one they've been waiting for. This is the story of the snake-crushing king. This is the one who's going to change everything. But then he comes in riding on a donkey. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, if you wanted a snake-crushing king, you do not want him riding a donkey, wouldn't you say? Right? 
Like, like if I'm, I'm watching a, a movie about war, I, I want the leader, I, I want the king, the warrior, I want him on a stallion. I'm, I'm on a steed. We have some friends who, who care for horses and rehabilitate horses. And my, my son is good friends uh, with the, the daughter. And uh, they're, they're trying to get married at five and we're trying to discourage it. And... Uh, and so uh, they were over at their, their, their property, and they have all of these horses. And I didn't spend any time, even though I'm from Kentucky, I I'm, I'm from coal mining country, and I, I didn't spend a lot of time around horses. And the other day, uh, we took a, kind of a tour of these stables where some of the most beautiful horses. I mean, these horses have been in, in races, and, and they, uh, they've won Breeders' Cup awards. And, 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 and her whole responsibility is to oftentimes rehab them or allow them to live out their lives uh, in uh, care uh, at this particular facility. And I remember the first time I walked through the stables and I turned and this magnificent horse, this head came through uh, the bars and it startled me. And I took a moment and I just stopped and was like, wow. Like, I don't know if you've ever stopped and just gave, we have an amazing valley, don't we? Amen. And uh, it, it, it's interesting to me, our fascination throughout time with horses, with, with, uh, with just our, somehow these creatures just seem to be uh, put on display for us. And then somehow we use them and horses can be uh, traced to uh, all of uh, the development of civilization throughout time. Horses have always been a part of human beings' stories. I would encourage you, this, this, the, the book of Job has this one spot where, where Job is getting in an argument with God. Have you ever gotten in an argument with God? <laughs> You're in good company, right? Some of you are like, I don't know if I'm supposed to answer that, right? Like, uh, yeah, can I tell you that uh, that's exactly uh, the history uh, and story of the Bible is us wrestling with who we are in light of who he is. And this ancient story, the, the oldest book, not the first book, but the oldest book, this ancient literature of Job, the story of Job, Job begins to get in this argument, and there's this discourse that God booms out, and, and I love it. He, he says, where were you, old, old man, when, when, I, when I made everything? <laughs> right? You, you ever get in an argument with God and go, what are you doing, as if he doesn't know what he's doing? And yet he begins to point to creation to say, look, where were you? Did I consult with you to, 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 to know where to stop the land and stop the sea? And then he, then he just points at the horse. He's like, I did that, right? Like God, God just goes, look, look at the majesty of a horse. And I think it's interesting that through, uh, throughout uh, human history, even I think it's sometimes a problem, right? Like some of you guys, how many of you uh, grew up watching old westerns, right? Uh, how many of you still watch old westerns? <laughs> What are you doing, right? Uh, anyways, uh, how many like new? It's interesting to me that in these battle scenes, people are getting shot left and right, and no one blinks. And the moment a horse goes down, everyone in the crowd goes, "Ah, right!" Like, 
Like 75 people just died and one horse, you're like, oh, not the horse, right? You're even worried about the horse goes down. You're wondering like, how'd they do that? And, and then they have to put a disclaimer. No, no horses were hurt in the making of this. They don't ever say that no human being was hurt in the making of this. You ever notice that? People break limbs. Or no, no one cares if they got hurt, but no, no horses were hurt in the making of this film, right? There's something about it. And so, yet, there is this image at the end of the book where Jesus comes riding on a horse. There is this image where he comes to make war. And ultimately, the end of that video, talking about the day that they hoped, but see, they thought that day was this day. They thought Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to make war. And there's a couple kind of explanations for why Jesus used a cult. And some of it, I, I think, is very true. I think there's a couple ways we can think about this. Is that ultimately what Jesus was showing us is this upside-down kingdom. Where in the book of Mark, Jesus begins to describe what this kingdom is like. And he points to all of the rulers of the world. And he says, do you know that anyone in charge tends to abuse their authority. You ever notice that? Right? And then you find yourself in a place of authority and realize that sometimes you're susceptible to the same things, right? Do what I say and not what I do. And yet, that's what the video begins to explain to us, that all the kings of the stories, that they thought this guy, this person, every king that came before them, they thought, oh, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the one who will not succumb to sin. And yet, oftentimes, like we've talked, we hold standards for others that we do not hold for ourselves, where Jesus says, hey, listen, friends, let's take care of the log in our own eye before we deal with the speck in others, that all of us giving, given authority have the potential to be corrupt and given over to our pride and our sense of, of uh, our, our, the sense of having arrived and, and somehow that we know best for others. And the reality is, is oftentimes we don't know what's best for ourselves, let alone what is best for others. And yet Jesus says this, he, he says, every leader does this, every person in authority. He says, but not so with you. Yet oftentimes our quest and our ambition for authority is fueled by doing what's best for ourselves. I, 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 I want that job so I can work inside. I want, I want the air-conditioned office. I want the corner office. I want the paid vacation. I, I want that position not in order to serve, but to be served. And Jesus says to disciples who are in the exact same boat where they want to be in charge, he says, every leader does this. Every ruler does this, but not so with you. He says that to the disciples, and that echoes through. And what he means is, not so with you. Everyone else does that, but not so with you. He says, you want to be great? I think it, we, we're all honest. All of us in here would say we want to be great. 
And then he defines what greatness is. He says, then you don't lord over people. You become the least. You serve the most. You humble yourselves. Because not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. And so when we expected a horse, he rides in on a donkey. He turns the world upside down. What you thought would be a display of power, and that's what they wanted. They wanted him to ride into Jerusalem to uh, have a revolt, and they've seen it before. See, this isn't the first time that they had a parade and waved up palm branches. The Maccabean revolt, Judas Maccabee, who we talked about a few weeks ago, and what they celebrate in the weeks of Hanukkah. They too, uh, the the book of of Maccabee would tell us uh, that they got palm branches and waved it, thinking that Judas Maccabee was the Messiah. This is not the first time they've done it. And yet, Jesus comes in on a donkey. He doesn't ride with his troops, militant style, in to overthrow. He comes in on a donkey. It's interesting. I read a commentary that that also talked about it wasn't uncommon for a king to ride a donkey. See, I think there's a couple ways we can look at it. We say that's peculiar, but we're also so removed from the culture that we have to wrestle with these ideas. That that one commentary said that it was it was not uncommon that if a a king was going out into battle, he would ride a horse. But if he had won the battle. And as a symbol of peace, he would ride in on a donkey. And yet, this is called the triumphant entry. What is Jesus saying when he rides in on a donkey? What he's saying is, is I've come to make peace. I've come to bring peace. I've come to make things Right, the prince of peace riding in on a donkey. Yet there's a war raging. I mean, the Pharisees are are ready to kill him. And yet the enemy knows Satan himself is using people around him ultimately to destroy him. And what he's saying is, I'm not come for war. And yet exactly what they wanted was war. Yet Jesus wants to give peace. See, I think the symbol that we have to wrestle with is, is the way Jesus wages war is through a symbol of peace. Man, that's so counterintuitive. It, it, it's so opposite of what I want to do because, man, I, I, I don't know about you, but, but if, if someone brings, as simple as, as someone bringing a, a complaint to me or, or saying, Pastor Sam, uh, you know, I, I want to, you offended me and, and, and they're like, I got a couple things I want to talk to you about. I was like, I'm glad you brought it up because I got a list for you, friend. You know what I'm saying? I got a whole, I got a whole, I got a whole file cabinet for you. You got a couple for me. I, I, I got some things to talk to you about as well, friend. Anybody? Right? You ever get honked at by the pastor on the street? Anyways, um, so I'll do it, friends. Don't you drive terrible and attend my church? Right? Right? You ever get honked at and immediately what do you do? All right. 
Listen, if you, if you attend this church and, and you're engage in some communication on the highway, <laughs> my son's like, Dad, why are you honking? I'm communicating, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, if, but if you're going to use a gesture, uh, use a thumbs down, right? Because you're like, I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> that hurts, doesn't it, right? Like somebody, just give him a thumbs down, I'm disappointed. See, because what's in our nature is to return evil for evil. What's in our nature is to give back what is owed. What's our nature is an eye for an eye. What's in our nature is to escalate. And yet, Jesus does something peculiar when there's war waging in front of him though a host of enemies encamped about me and desire to eat up my flesh this one thing I will ask of the Lord this one thing I will seek after all the days of my life to dwell in the house of the Lord forever he prepares a table in the presence of my enemies put down the sword and begin to feast. There's something about the kingdom of God that is fascinating to me. It's that somehow with words, with acts of love, with symbols of peace, the war is won. It's the triumphant entry but how he'll defeat the enemy is so counterintuitive to what we think and it's so different than what we want. Yet, the Son of Man will suffer and die. And this is how he's going to destroy the enemy? This is how he's going to defeat the serpent? This is how he's going to destroy the works of the enemy? He's going to allow himself to exhaust himself. Colossians writes this, says this, Paul writes this in Colossians. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. See, the enemy will use all of the things of the world to try to tell you that you can win your battles outside of the person of Christ. The enemy will use philosophy, human traditions, good advice, good deeds, wild theories, movements, organizations, constitutions. The enemy will use every tactic to convince you to put your faith in something else as if the enemy has not been exhausted by the work of Jesus the Messiah. 
So put your faith and trust in the snake-crushing king who allowed himself to suffer and die. Where the scripture says, if Satan had known what he was doing, he would have never killed him. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He has all authority. You know what? The worst, the, the fear tactic, the work of the enemy is to convince you to be afraid of death. And that is the tactics of war. That is how people dominate and domineer. Either to scare you or to ultimately using the fear of death or death itself. That is how people rule. But if Christ has conquered death, then there is no fear. There is no fear. He rules all. In him, also you are circum circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, but putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, the power working of God who raised him from the dead, and you, and you, who were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he put aside, nailing it to the cross. How did he defeat the enemy? He took on the debt that the enemy would use to scare us cause us to be afraid of punishment that we deserved to use guilt and shame and yet Jesus canceled it nailing it to the cross and then verse 15 of Colossians 2 says this he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The triumphant entry, this celebration, this is when Jesus would take everything that the enemy had. And the Bible says the enemy exhausted himself. I heard it said this way that like the great Muhammad Ali, he rope-a-doped him. He took every shot. I think, it, I think it's better than any Rocky movie you ever watched. There's something about taking a punch. There's something about getting back up. There's something about suffering well that echoes throughout time that greatness and true strength is found with those who suffer well, who endure, who their strength and their fortitude is nothing will stop us, nothing will keep us 
Why? Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. No trial, no difficulty, no frustration if I'm found in him, putting my trust in him. See, that day they waved palm branches believing that he was this Messiah. They were looking forward to that day. Now we're looking back at that day. And we find peace in that. But we not only look back, we look forward. We look to the day that Jesus will not come riding on a donkey, but he'll come riding on a stallion. And the sword of the Spirit, his word like a sword from his mouth, he'll speak the truth, and the truth will set all of creation that's been lied to, that's been deceived, will set us free, and he'll do it with the truth. So then, what's our principle? What's our act? Not to be taken captive. Not to put our faith in things that won't hold water. To hold fast to the truth. Not to look to others or philosophies or politics or governments or politicians or some good advice book or some influencer on social media. I am meant to stand firm on the person of Jesus, the author and the finisher of this grand Story. Put your trust in Jesus who has destroyed the works of Satan. So then what shall we be afraid of? What shall worry us, friends? What shall we wring our hands about? Put down your sword. Loosen your hands. Lift your eyes. And worship the King of Kings who has all rule and all authority. And the question you'll have to wrestle with is do you believe that? And will you trust him? See, the early church participated in a couple ordinances, a couple symbols. See, there were all kinds of symbols. There were all kinds of things. But there were two of them. One mentioned here, baptism, and one mentioned will be mentioned in a couple weeks as we look at Jesus giving us this new this new spiritual practice of reflecting on what he actually did and that's what we call the Lord's table or communion we haven't done this in a while and so trying to figure out how we would do it in difficult times we've kind of put it on the back burner but I tell you I feel like God is pressing upon us to do this more often even more often than we did in the past and so maybe you're new around here and you've not done this or taking the Lord's table is new here's the idea is that we remember that Jesus overcome the enemy through his sacrificial life-giving death death on a cross he gave his body and by doing so he gave us life 
Around the room, there are stations where you'll find some juice and you'll find some bread. Here's what I want you to do in just a moment. Pastor Joe is going to sing a, an old song. I want you to, if you want to participate in this, there's no pressure in that. I'm not going to put any, you don't have to have me put the bread in your mouth. I don't need to, this is, this is just normal bread. We do anything to it. It's normal juice. I don't believe that this changes. It doesn't turn into the actual body of Christ. This is merely a symbol, and symbols are powerful. Symbols, like an heirloom, can cause memories to come up, a story to come up. And so Jesus says, as often as you do this, remember me. Like a family heirloom, he's given us bread and juice, bread and wine. If you're home right now watching on the online campus, grab whatever you have. Grab some juice, grab some wine, grab some bread. Get your family around. Take this with us. So I want you to take those, and then I want you to kind of gather together. You can stand, gather in groups around the room as if you were around a table together. And then I'll come back and we'll partake together. Amen. Joe. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise and to know Thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust His cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him how I proved him more and more Jesus Jesus precious Jesus oh for grace to trust him more oh for grace to trust him You don't, you don't have to stand around the back walls. You can gather in, in the chairs. I think kind of what happened at a supermarket. Once we're like, I just think we're supposed to stand here. Like three aisles are open. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> one person does it. See, what I think, uh, I even uh, debated just that moment to make a joke. It's like, wait, this is a reverent moment. And yet, what you find is that 
the early church, when they did this, it was a, it was a party. It was a, it was a meal with friends. There was much laughter. There was celebration. The feast of the Old Testament. That's exactly where they were feast. And so sometimes I think we miss some of those things that we need to recapture that together. And so I would encourage you, this is not the only moment where you should participate in this taking of communion, the Lord's table. You should do it at home with your friends. You should invite people over and you should pray and you should say, hey, we're going we're gonna to take this together. We're going to pray. This is what it means. You should use this as a practical way to teach your children about what Christ has done. It's a symbol and it's for you and you don't need a holy man or a holy place to participate. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit and so then everywhere you go, the presence of God is with you and you have an opportunity to be made aware that he is always with you. Sometimes moments like this are like tuning a dial to the radio. He's always there. The signal's always there but are you in tune with it? See, prayer and moments like this are about being made aware of him being with us. The body represented by the bread that he gave himself for us. He took on pain and suffering and he's not absent from it. So we can have hope that someday too, as he was raised, we will be healed we can be healed now. We will be healed later that everything will change. We'll have a new body, resurrected bodies. That's not given to corruption. It's not given to sin, pain, suffering, ailments. And he did that for us. Jesus, we thank you for giving yourself for us. That we do not have a high priest who is absent from our sufferings. Jesus, we reflect every time we take, we reflect on the beaten body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. You took that fatal snake bite and you exhausted the venom. No longer has a power has power over us. Thank you, Jesus. Will you take together? took a cup of wine and he said this is the blood of my new covenant what does he mean he means he's kept the old one where man came up short time and time again God became a man and held both ends of the bargain both ends of the covenant this is a symbol that the record of debt held against us has been paid in full he bought us with the he bought us and he paid the price and he signed the deed with his blood 
so that our lives could be found in him. Jesus, we thank you for this cup that it reminds us. It reminds us of who you are and what you've done for us. Let us take this often. Let us be reminded that guilt and shame and fear no longer have a hold on us, that we've been bought with a price. You've canceled the record of debt and you nailed it to a cross. And it's by your blood we are saved. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. We take together. Sing this one more time. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more, oh, for grace to trust him more. We're going to end this way like we do every single week, not with a mantra, but with a mission. We're going to say this together. Let everything we say and do bring glory to God and good to this valley. Will you say it with me? Let everything we say and do bring glory to God and good to this valley. We'll see you.